We look once again this evening at First uh, John, and we come to the end of our, our looking at First John. I guess it's appropriate we end the year and end the look at this book. I wish I could say I had planned it all along, but it just is the way in which things have worked out. But we're going to look at First uh, uh, John chapter 5, and I will begin reading at verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter. 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that you should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God in heaven, we thank you that you give light to us and light our path and direct us in our ways. And we thank you that you do that through the instrumentality of your word as you open it to us. And we pray this night, O Lord, that you will help us to to be enlightened in our hearts and our minds and for our paths to be directed by that which you give to us out of your word. We pray for your spirit to work in us, to enable us to live in a way that honors you. And we make our prayer to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. We say together, Amen. Uh, For most of us, it's uh, easy for us uh, to get get distracted, uh, particularly when we're looking at uh, biblical uh, kinds of things. I don't know if it happened to any of you that as I was reading the text this evening, uh, that I got to that part that says that there is a sin that leads to death And you sort of drifted over and wondered, what is that sin that leads to death? And you miss the other parts of the text that I read. And and this time of year, this season of the year, it really is easy for us uh, to be uh, distracted. uh, The festivities that surround Christmas, uh, the Christmas celebration. I mean, we we know what Christmas is about. We know why there is the holiday Christmas. Uh, We know it's the time of the year when the church celebrates uh, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We remember uh, the time when the second person of the Trinity um, uh, became a man, uh, Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem. Uh, The babe was God in the flesh, and uh, he was truly God and truly man. And, and we get reminded of this in lots of different ways. Uh, you're here tonight and you've probably been reminded of it this morning and reminded of it in other ways as well. 
Uh, but we allow ourselves uh, uh, and, and uh, to, to get involved in many other forms of celebration that lead us away from the primary basis and the primary reason uh, for having this uh, holiday time of Christmas. I'm not sure what forms of a distraction that you face. Uh, uh, for many of us, they're very real kinds of distractions, and they, they do. They, they diminish uh, uh, the festivities. They, they rob us of some of the spiritual, <clears throat> spiritual blessings uh, and benefits that come from remembering this, this stupendous fact that the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who created us, that God was born in Bethlehem, the babe. Now, I say that to you, and you people have come to church a lot, and you've heard it, but there ought to be something in you that still says, wow, that's amazed at what the incarnation presents to us, that the maker of heaven and earth, in order to save you from your sins, became the babe in Bethlehem. The man who walked upon this earth and died upon Calvary's cross. That's what the incarnation is about. And so when we get distracted, when we get led away from the primary purpose of the celebration, I think we become uh, lesser for it and we are robbed of something that's important. Now John concludes this epistle and he reminds his readers once again of the incarnation. You see that in, uh, in verse 20, for example. He says, the Son of God has come. He is true God and eternal life. Now John has, throughout this book, uh, uh, told us about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and he's been impressing on us in various ways that Jesus was really the Son of God who came, and he was really God, and he was truly man. He's tried to tell us that. And, and there's a reason for that. We've gone over this in the past, that, that those who were the opponents of John had this strange idea that that the divine came upon Jesus at his baptism and somehow then he, he left Jesus before, uh, the divine left Jesus before he went to, went to the cross. And we looked at that when we looked at that, uh, of the testimony that comes, that John talks about, of the, of the water and the blood and of the spirit and the way in which uh, he's trying to straighten out his opponents that are there. So this, this is a, uh, uh, something that's important to John. And, and John, once again, in this uh, passage, reminds us uh, uh, that uh, he has written this book so that we might know that we have life and that we have eternal life. And he's been doing this throughout the letter. I mean, for those of you with good memories, or those of you who have been reviewing the, the book once in a while as we study it, you know right back at the very beginning. And he starts telling us that, uh, uh, that uh, Jesus is life and that he's eternal life and that that's where eternal life comes from. And uh, so he begins by, by explaining that to us. And uh, so we see this in the very first part. Um, but John also wants us not only to see that he's the son of God who gives us eternal life, but he also wants to impress upon us that he's real, that he's a real man. And, and he just does that from the very beginning. That's why John starts off in that, that almost strange way of saying, I saw him, I heard him, I touched him. The reality of it, 
And the reality John is trying to get across to us, both at the beginning of this book and over and over again through the book, now here at the end of the book is, so that we who are the receivers of this book come to understand that Jesus, who was the Son of God, who is the Son of God, who remains the Son of God, also was a very real man. He was a person. He was a babe in Bethlehem. He was a man who walked upon this earth. John's trying to keep, make sure that we keep that in mind. And uh, uh, so he tells us all of these things. Um, he approaches the end of this letter by, by explaining once again that, uh, that, that, that the Son of God who came in the flesh is the one who gives us eternal life. And we looked at this the last time in verses 11 and 12 of chapter, chapter 5. Let me just read that to you to refresh your memory. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And again, he concludes, as I've already read from, uh, from, the, from the, uh, verse 20, we know the Son of God has come. He is the true God and eternal life. And we, we dare not miss John's point here uh, that the only way for us to have eternal life is to have that eternal life through the instrumentality, through the work of the Son of God who became man. That's, that's the only way we can do it. We have, to, we have to believe in that Jesus. We have to trust that Jesus. Our faith has to be centered in that Jesus who was the Son of God who became man. And those who, who believe this uh, have been born of God, as uh, John will tell us, and uh, they are the ones who have a life eternal. Now, it does seem to me that in the midst of our Christmas celebrations, that it's easy to forget this. It's easy to forget that the reason, one of the reasons why Jesus came was in order for us to have life eternal. And it's not only in this book that, that, that John em emphasizes this. We can actually go and look at his, uh, his gospel, and he records the way in which Jesus tells us about this. And in, in John's gospel, the 10th chapter, the 10th verse, Jesus explains why, why he came. And he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And, and when we remember the coming of Christ, when we remember the Christmas story, we need to recall these words, the words that Jesus gave to us, that, that he came to give us life abundant. And when you make comparisons, when you look at the things that, that are around us at Christmas time, that, that have a tendency to distract us, of the glitter, uh, all the things that are around. I mean, think of how much time you spend thinking about the Christmas tree and how little time you may think that Jesus came to give me eternal life that I will live this life, one day I will die, but my, I will keep going on, I will continue, and I will live forever with the Lord Jesus Christ. If we can keep that in our focus, rather than allowing those other things that distract us, I think that's one of the things that John is trying to impress upon us, not to lose sight of this eternal life that Jesus brings to us. But in this passage, John is not only telling us that, that Jesus brings eternal life, but he's telling us there are other uh, consequences as well. There are other things that, that come to us because uh, the Son of God has become man and lives among us. And uh, one of the first consequences that he points out for us is that we can be assured that he hears our prayers. 
And uh, we see this set out for us in verses 14 through 17. And uh, when God hears our prayers, it's not just, it's not like God says, yes, I heard it. It's not like he's a typical father like some of us were. Our kids say something to us and our heads sort of go like this and it goes right past us. John wants us to understand that when God hears, that, that, that he, he acts, he's not inert, that, that the hearing of God of our prayers is something that happens. It's almost like John is saying, God hears, God grants. That's what he's telling us here, that when God hears our prayers, in hearing those prayers, he's also the ones who, 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 who answers our prayers. Now, we have to be careful we don't get a wrong idea of this, that, that we can just ask God for anything and that God will then uh, just uh, grant to us whatever it is that we request. John makes very clear that there's a condition attached uh, to this, uh, these requests that we make of God. And we see that in, in uh, verse 14 of chapter 5. And let me read that to you. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What he's telling us is that our selfish desires are not the things that God hears and then God grants. He's saying if we, 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 if we make our prayers according to the will of God, either that revealed will of God or the decretive will of God, then those things are granted to us. That's, that's John's point that he puts forward here. Now, it's interesting the way in which John goes on and illustrates this because his illustration of the prayer is that he tells us that we ought to pray for one another. That's not surprising in a book where he has emphasized over and over again that we ought to love our brother and sisters. But what he tells us is that we ought to pray that God would forgive the sins of our brothers and sisters. That's, that's what he's uh, pointing out. That's, 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 that's the request he makes of these people. We see that in verses 16 and 17. And, and for many of us, uh, the idea of asking God to forgive somebody else of their sins is, is uh, well, it's just a little bit strange. Uh, we think of forgiveness and praying for forgiveness as a, as a very individual kind of act. And uh, uh, even beyond the individualism we associate with forgiveness, uh, the idea of, of dealing with somebody else's sins is, is, is almost bad form. I mean, you know, we've, we've sort of stepped over some kind of line and, uh, you know, we, we, we worry about, am I being uh, accusatory? Am I, am I invading somebody else's space in some way? And so there are lots of kind of cultural things around us that, that may, may, may make us hesitant to do this. But, but John is, is quite clear. And um, although we may think about this as kind of, uh, kind of strange, I don't think the Bible thinks about this as kind of strange at all. Uh, we can go back and we can look, for example, at, at the person of Job. I don't know if any of you remember the first chapter of Job, but let me just read to you from verse 5 of chapter 1 of Job. Uh, Job would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them, of his children. Uh, for Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. 
Uh, we see other examples of this also. For example, uh, you may remember the story of, uh, of uh, Stephen, the martyr, uh, when he was about to be stoned. And we have recorded for us in Acts chapter 7, uh, the 60th verse, these words from Stephen. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And perhaps the example of praying for someone else like this that we're most familiar with is the Lord Jesus himself upon the cross. And we, we can read in Luke's gospel, uh, the 31st, fourth verse, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And not only did Jesus make that prayer when he hung upon the cross, but the writer of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 7 that he continues to make intercession for us, that, that that's something that he does. And so um, we shouldn't be surprised as John calls upon us to do this, because even though it may seem a little bit of out of the ordinary uh, for us to pray that God would forgive other people of their sins, it's clearly not out of the ordinary. It's not strange, if you will, if we look at the whole of the scriptures as they put these things before us. Now again, when John makes this request of his people, of these beloved children uh, of his congregation, uh, he puts a condition on this intercessory prayer, and he tells his beloved children that it's not necessary to pray for the sin that leads to death. And my, my fear is that you might be like me and you would be more interested in what the sin is to death uh, and figuring out what that is and spending more time on that than I am in following John's admonition to pray for you that God would forgive you of your sins. Uh, I think that's a, a danger that we have and maybe it's a, a danger I'm imposing on you because it comes out of me. But my, my fear is I may not be the only one in this room who can be led around like that. Uh, but, but then commentators struggle with this, uh, and I can understand why. It's, it's very difficult to try to figure out what the sins are that John is talking about, what it is in his mind as he, as he uh, tells us this, and uh, it's, it's very difficult to give a clear and, and, a, and, a, and an explanation in which, an interpretation in which people will not have doubts about it. Now, the one thing I think we can be sure of is that John's original audience understood what he was talking about because he gives no explanation. He just tells them this with the expectation that these people that we know he's had this very close and intimate connection with, that he calls his little children, his beloved, all these kind of things that show his connections with them, and he tells them there's a sin that leads to death, and with the assumption that they know exactly what he's talking about. Now, we don't happen to have that. I do think there are some assumptions we have to make in the context of the entire book. And one of those assumptions that seems to me that is appropriate to make is that whatever this uh, sin is, that they denied the truth of the incarnation. Uh, and uh, that was something that belonged to his, his opponents, to those who had, had left uh, John and uh, the rest of the congregation. Uh, he, he talks about this uh, earlier in chapter 2. Let me read to you verse 22 about the Antichrist. He says, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. I judge that John Calvin's uh, a summary description is both accurate and helpful. Calvin says, from the context we can infer that it is not what they call a partial fall or transgression of a single commandment, but apostasy, Man, men alienating themselves completely for God from God. And it's important for us to note that, that John doesn't tell us, doesn't forbid us from, from praying for someone who may be engaged in, in this kind of a sin. Uh, he just says he's not requiring it. It seems to me that's what we see at the end of, uh, of verse 16. I do not say that one should pray for that. He doesn't say you dare not pray for that. So it does seem to me he gives us some liberty on that. 
Now, I think we have to be careful that we don't get distracted by concentrating on the, on the definition and on trying to be able to recognize what the sin that leads to death is and forget uh, to pray that God will, will forgive us of our sins and forgive uh, one another of their sins. It's like it's more important. And if you're like me, you're, uh, you're probably not used to making an ordinary part of your, your Christmas celebration, for example, of saying, let's take a little bit of time uh, to pray that God will forgive Alan of his sins, even when Alan's not there. I mean, it's just not something that, that if you're like I am, you think about it. It probably hasn't crossed your minds, and some of you may even be sink, sitting there thinking, is that not really saying that? You know, it's just so odd to us. But yet I think it's very straightforward in the text that, that, that because of the incarnation, because Jesus has come, because Jesus has, has come to purchase eternal life for us, because he is the God-man that has come, one of the things that we ought to be doing is that we ought to be praying for them. Because if we believe that Jesus, the Son of God, has, has come in the flesh, and then as the apostle sets out this type of prayer, it's something that, that follows from that belief, you see? Forgiveness of sins is something that's real, and we love one another, and we know uh, that, that we ought to, to, to be able to, to show that love and to engage in loving one another in those things which are most central to who we are, and what can be more central to us than to know that, that, that somebody's asking that God will forgive us of our sins, that will wipe the slate clean, you see? I will pray to that God that John himself talks about, uh, that uh, he, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's, that's the God to whom we ought to pray. So we need to see this. And so, um, you know, we may ask lots of questions of ourselves trying to avoid engagement in this, this kind of a prayer. You know, is this a public prayer or is it a, a private prayer? My suspicion is that John probably was thinking of this as something that was done in public, but I'm not convinced that, that it has to be a kind of public prayer. It does seem to me that if we were doing this in private, we would be following John's commission and admonition to us here. But how do we do this? Well, let me, let me try to make a, one of those little preacher suggestions to you. This is a suggestion that comes to parents and to grandparents. Because when we, we think about Christmas, we often think about Christmas as, as time for the kids. You know, it's, it's, it's got this in our society, in our culture at least, this, this kind of children's uh, notions all built around it. But as a part of your thinking about the kids, uh, those children and grandchildren that you have, why don't you build in to your life praying like Job did. Uh, you don't have to offer the sacrifice, but offer the sacrifice of prayer and say, ah, my children may have sinned. Lord God, forgive them of that sin. And if you live in the home with the children, you may be able to say, my children have sinned against you in this way, sovereign God. For Jesus' sake, forgive them. Follow that pattern of Job as he did regularly, continually, is what the text tells us about Job. Another one of the consequences that comes uh, from, uh, uh, from the incarnation is that we can fight against persistent sin. John sets this out for us in, in verse 18. Uh, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God uh, protects him and the evil one does not touch him. 
Um, uh, John, John, in this statement, uh, 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 suggests that uh, uh, those who are born of God uh, do not keep on sinning. And some people look at this and they uh, arrive at a conclusion that John has in mind some kind of perfectionism. That is, that, uh, that people uh, can come to a point in their Christian life where they no longer sin. Well, well I just think it's, that's, that's just can't possibly be the case. In the verses just previous to this, what have we been looking at? John says, pray for your brothers and sisters in the church that God would forgive them of what? <laughs> Sins. And so he doesn't have some kind of perfectionism in mind. Uh, whatever he's talking about, he can't have forgotten what he said just uh, a few words before uh, as he goes on and makes this kind of a thing. So if the uh, brothers and sisters in Christ can pray for forgiveness of sins, and then he doesn't have this kind of perfectionism. So we, we need to ask ourselves the question, what is it that John means as he talks here? And uh, uh, I think John has in view a case where Christians are, are delivered from the captivity and persistence of sin. We, we looked at this, wrestled with this a little bit when we looked at chapter three of this book. And uh, we need to first of all see that, that, that this uh, uh, verb for sinning really can carry on the idea that uh, English translations try to get out, uh, that they keep on sinning, that it's a sin that's, uh, that's uh, persistent with no attempt, uh, no desire really uh, to abate it. Uh, as I say, we see this back in chapter 3 as well. And John tells us uh, some, he gives us some idea of why that can be the case. He makes the point that Christ who came in the flesh protects uh, Christians against being overwhelmed by sin and by becoming captive to it. Uh, um, uh, this is what he means in 5.18 when he says, he who was born of God protects him. Uh, he's, it's a little play here of the way in which John uses the words. He first of all talks about them, those who were born of God. He's talking about uh, Christians. Then he talks about him who was born of God. He's really referring to a person that is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, the incarnate son understands our struggle. Uh, he understands our struggle against sin. And in that struggle, he protects us and works in us by the power, the spirit that he has sent uh, to enable us to oppose uh, the sin that uh, attacks us. Uh, he He's uh, fitting right in with the way in which the writer of Hebrews tells us too in chapter 4. Let me just read to you verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So that, that Jesus, who was, who was incarnate, who was a real person, he understands what's going on with us when we're tempted. And it is that Jesus, then, who protects us and that Jesus who is available to us when we pray to him and when we ask him to deliver us from sin. And John also tells us that Jesus' protection means that the evil one doesn't touch us. Now, this, this, this word for touch also could be talked about in terms of assailing us or assaulting us in some way. And what John, I think, is trying to get 
get across to us is, is that, that Jesus does protect us from the, the, the enslavement and captivating way in which sin can get a hold of us. He's hinted this before uh, when he talks about uh, the enslavement of sin. And uh, so uh, he's telling us here that, that, that one of the consequences of Jesus understanding our sin is that Jesus then can protect us and he can work in us so that sin doesn't captivate us, doesn't drag us down. So that's a consequence of the incarnation. Another consequence of the incarnation is that we know that we are connected with God, and not only do we know that we are connected with God, but that we are disconnected from the world because the world is connected to the evil one. Um, and when he talks about us being from God, uh, he means that, that we, are, we are united to him, and that union that we experience with God uh, comes to us uh, as something that, 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 that follows from the incarnation. It follows from Jesus uh, becoming a human being. Uh, Jesus uh, takes on flesh. He comes and in a way he, he unites uh, those things together. And so now we who are humans can have this connection uh, with our God uh, through, uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Apostle Paul uses this in a little bit different way. One of his favorite expressions is to be in Christ, that we have this, this inseparable relationship. There's a, there's a way in which uh, Jesus is in us and we are in Jesus. And John also talks about this is he uses this language of abide and I've tried to use the illustration that when uh, when someone abides in you like when somebody moves into your house you can't help but notice it uh, and that's that's the idea that John has here that we are we are connected to God and his connection with us is something that that is uh, uh, we should we should notice and uh, he points out uh, the contrary and that is that the entire world is uh, um, uh, under the power of the evil one. And he, he makes this point earlier uh, in chapter 4, for example. Let me just read a bit from that. He says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The world is under the power and direction of the evil one, but the one who is in you, you who are in God, and God is in you, he is more powerful than, than the evil one. And this uh, notion of, of believers being united to God and uh, not being in the world and being able to overcome the world, it does uh, seem to me as something that, that is very important for us. And um, I, I, it just seems to me that it should be a part of our celebration, if you will, of the incarnation, to keep this in mind. Uh, the problem for most of us is that, that we have experienced uh, the pull of the world, and that pull to the world is a pull to that which is controlled uh, by the evil one, by Satan. Let me try to illustrate that, if you, I will. When, I'm, I'm an old man, so I can remember you know, years back when I was a young man that, that it was just the customary way in which people greeted one another at this time of year was to say, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. If you look at old films, you see that that's what they always did. But we see the way in which the power of the evil one has come. So that I suspect there are some people in this room that they are hesitant to say Merry Christmas. And they find themselves saying, happy holidays. Why? 
because the world in which we live wants nothing whatsoever to do with this Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. And not only do they don't want anything to do with him, they don't want you to be able to talk to us. And that, my friends, is downright evidence of the power of the evil one and the way in which the world is under its influence, you see. And not that the greeting is central, but that the way in which we feel badly and feel a little guilty and a little hesitant to use these kind of Christian statements does strike me as an evidence of the way in which the evil one is in control. Uh, escaping from the power of the evil one uh, uh, is, is, is important. And I suspect that at Christmas time, perhaps more than any other time of the year, uh, we're, we're more prone to fall prey to the, to the patterns of the world and to follow the, uh, the evil one. And the question that, that we struggle with is, uh, because the, the, the power of the evil one in our, in our society, in the culture in which we live, is so pervasive, it just seems to sweep over us in every way in which we look. We, we, we go around asking ourselves the questions, how, how in the world... Do we, do we acknowledge and recognize and make, allow it to make some difference in our, in our lives that, that we are connected to God and we are not connected to the world and in particular, we're not under the power of the evil one? How, how do we go about doing that? Uh, think about some, we have to think about some, some strategic way of, of making sure we put into practice what it is that John's talking about here. Uh, first of all, John makes this bold statement. We know this. And in this situation, this knowledge really does give us power. Um, and, and this knowledge is power. I mean, think about the way in which the world and the power of the devil is, is evident. And it is evident in our society, I would judge, in very real forms of idolatry. And those real forms of idolatry seem to raise their head at Christmas time. I mean, think about it. Who is the god of Christmas in modern America? Mammon, the god of money, the god of stuff. Who is right there alongside him? Narcissus, the god of self-indulgence. And who comes along? Bacchus, the god of drunkenness and revelry. Think about the complex of the next, uh, uh, you know, the, till the end of the year, the beginning of the next new year. You see, we, we see this evidence around us, but one of the things that we have to recognize is the one who is in us is stronger than the one who is in them. That we are connected with God. That's what John says. We are connected with God because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And this knowledge ought to be power for us. This knowledge ought to be power because God is the one who overcomes. And he overcomes and he works in us. He does give us that power so that we do not have to bow down to mammon. And so that we do not have to come under the influence, under the pervasive influence of, of uh, narcissus and self-indulgence. Uh, self we just don't have to do that. We have some other alternatives. You see, we can bow ourselves down to this God who has so loved us that he sent his own son, the creator, the word of God, the one who was present and said, let there be light and there was light. He came to earth to live upon this earth as a human being, as a person. 
And the reason why he did that was so he could go to Calvary's cross and bear in his own body the punishment that our sins deserve. And not only did Jesus come to do that, but after Jesus died upon the cross, he was raised again on the third day, he ascended into heaven where he sits at the Father's right hand and makes continual intercession for you and for me. You know that. And that knowledge gives us power. That knowledge that we have this God, this is a God to whom we can cry out. That's what the writer of Hebrews was talking about when I read to you from that passage in chapter 4. That, that, that he's there for us and he, he understands our predicament and our plight and so we can plead with him for deliverance. You see, it, it, there is a power, if you will, in, in the knowledge that we have that, we are, that God is on our side. And so I think it's important for us. But I come back to where I was earlier. All of these things are important for us and, and most of these things I'm telling you tonight are things that you already know. But what happens to us at this time of the year is we get distracted. And we allow the things of the world to come in. And sometimes they whisper. And sometimes they holler. But they come in at us and try to lead us astray. And sometimes it's very helpful for us to just stop and say, I know that I am not of the world. I know that I am not under the control of the evil one. I know that I'm connected to God because of what Jesus Christ did. And I know, I know that God was victorious over him, the devil and the evil one, that Jesus rose again on the third day. Those are things we know, and those are things that we have to remind ourselves of, that we have to call ourselves up about when we face the kinds of things, the distractions that, that come to us. And so we, we, we look at the way in which John ends this, 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 this epistle, and, and it may strike us as extraordinarily strange. Look at the very last verse of this, of this letter that he writes. My little children, he tells them, my beloved, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. What in the world is he talking about? But I trust this evening you know. You know those idols that are out there to get you. You know that they're out there to get you. They're out there to bring you, to bow before them. They're out there to get you, to follow them. And John says, you have eternal life. And the reason why you have eternal life is because God sent his son to come. And John says he came, I saw him, I heard him, I touched him. And he did come. And he reminds us that he who is in us is stronger than he who is in the world. He tells us so clearly without any uh, uh, doubt whatsoever that, he who, that the God is in us, that we are connected with us, and that we are separated from the world. He tells us all of these things. And he tells us, keep yourselves from idols. And I say to you, don't be distracted. Don't let the world get hold of you during these next few weeks. He who is in you is stronger than he who is in the world. Keep yourself from the idols that are about. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you're good to us. You come to us and you show us what we need 
But not only do you show us what we need, you remind us of the amazing thing that you did do for us. That you sent your own son to come and to be born in Bethlehem stable. And that he was born there and he walked and eventually ended up on the cross of Calvary to redeem us from our sins. And you have raised him victorious. Help us to cling to him, O Lord God in heaven, that we might keep ourselves from the idols that seek to lead us astray. Give us your power. Grant us your care and grace, we pray, for the sake of the incarnate Christ, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we say together, amen.